God doesn't take just weak people and make them better. The scripture, the message of the gospel is God takes dead people and he makes them alive. You need to be born from above. You can't even begin to display this kind of supernatural outlook on life without a birth from above. And you can't have that until you trust Jesus to save you. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are studying the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 12, which not only begins the applicational section of this letter, but it particularly addresses the topic of spiritual gifts. We have so far seen that spiritual gifts are given at the time of Christian conversion. They are given with the intention of glorifying God. And furthermore, we have seen that although these gifts are intended to be used in the power of the Holy Spirit, Oftentimes, they can be exercised in the power of our own strength. And so, in order to ensure that we're truly operating in the Spirit, the Apostle Paul stresses the importance of loving one another so as to have a right attitude. We already mentioned philadelphos, philos. This is the word philos for that family kind of love here in the spiritual body of Christ. Paul is using it. But it's joined with the word for natural affection. You see this word used in 2 Timothy 3 when he gives the signs of the last days and he puts the alpha prefix on it which discounts natural love. And he says, men will be lovers of money, lovers of self. And in that list of things he says, and without natural love. That will be a mark of the last days, the kind of love that you would expect parents to have for children and children to have for parents, or even normal marital love rather than the perverted love of our day. Paul says that will be a mark of the last days. And so Paul uses the word here positively, be devoted to one another in natural affection. Why should we? Because God has made us members one of another. In 1 John 5.1, John uses it as a mark of conversion. Whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. If I say I love God but do not love God's children, I'm kidding myself. If I say I love the Lord Jesus but do not love his church that he loves, I am deceived myself. John says in 1 John 4.20, if someone says I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, Now as to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. It's a mark in Paul's mind of genuine conversion. And so you see this tension in Scripture. It's much like forgiveness. On the one hand, like in the parable of the unrighteous servant, Jesus describes that a man who has truly met God will, as a way of life, forgive. But on the other hand, while that is a mark of conversion, Paul will say to the church at Ephesus, like the Lord taught us in what we call the model or Lord's Prayer, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God has forgiven you. So on the one hand, while it is a mark of conversion, on the other hand, it is something that sometimes a Christian can withhold. On the one hand, if, you are no, if you've met Christ in conversion, if you are a Christian of the born-again brand, because that's the only brand that counts to God, then you 
will love other born-again Christians. Well, on the one hand, it is a mark of conversion. It's easy to come into the church. It's easy to come into the fellowship and not to excel in showing that kind of natural, storge, uh, philos kind of love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now look at verse 11. He's speaking of love again when he says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now there's a real balance in this verse. When we give honor to other people, it does not mean we sit around and do nothing. Not lagging behind in diligence. That's the first phrase. Don't be sluggish in your work. Don't shrink back from doing what God has called you and gifted you and made you to do. It's much like Solomon will write in the book of Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. If you're going to do something, do it now, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge of wisdom in Sheol and the grave where you're going. If you're going to make a difference for God, make the difference now because one of these days you are going to be dead if Jesus doesn't come back first. And all opportunity for service will cease. But if you're going to do it, don't half do it. God doesn't want half-hearted service. He wants a job done with excellence and so he further defines it, not lagging behind in diligence. Notice the next phrase, fervent in spirit. The word fervent is the word zeo. It just literally means boiling. It's a little awkward to translate it in English, but I think you see the meaning boiling in spirit. He's talking about enthusiasm. Who gives enthusiasm? Is it manufactured? He's not talking about personality types here. He's talking about the kind of passion, the boiling of spirit that comes because you abhor what is evil, you are clinging to what is good, and God the Holy Spirit who lives in you can fill you and direct you. And in turn, he creates that enthusiasm. So you pull out of the parking lot today and you see a brother over on the side of the parking lot with his flat tire, and you don't roll down your window and say, bless you, brother, I'll pray for you. No, you, you, you pull over next to him and say, let me help you get that tire off. I'll help you to change it. We are to be eager. We are to be boiling in spirit to serve God's people. And of course, you can't work up that kind of love. It's an overflow again of a clean life. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Look at the third phrase. Serving the Lord. Before Paul can take a breath, he adds serving the Lord. Not lagging behind in diligence. That speaks outwardly of our care for each other. Being enthusiastic, fervent in spirit, that looks upward in our relationship with the Lord. But then, excuse me, inward in our relationship with the Lord. But then he says serving the Lord, that's upward. And so outward, I serve my brother, but that comes inward from a boiling spirit because upward, I am serving ultimately the Lord. Slaving the Lord, it literally reads. It's the word doulos in noun form, but here, of course, it's a verb, duleo. Paul opens this great epistle with that word. Paul, an apostle, a doulos, a bondservant, a slave of Christ Jesus. He saw himself not as his own property, but as Christ's slave. He's speaking not of involuntary slavery. He's speaking here of voluntary slavery. When we think of the word slavery, we typically think of it in a very negative way. 
We say, I work like a slave. But listen, when you lived in the early church in Rome, in most congregations, the majority of the people in the fellowship were slaves. Because 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And so when Rome conquered a people, rather than just imprison them all, they brought those people and they assigned those people to families. And so there were master-slave relationships. And that's why in the New Testament, he talks about Christians who under the Roman government could have been assigned slaves, how they were to deal with them and how those slaves were to deal with their masters. He's not talking about the kind of slavery we saw in America 150 years ago that was an abomination to Almighty God. Even under the Old Covenant, you see a similar principle where God managed slavery for a time because it was not ultimately in His will. But when they subjected a people, some people they didn't just wipe out like the Canaanites. They managed them. And so in Deuteronomy 15, for instance, in verse 12, God said to Israel, if your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, and sometimes even one of your own could be sold to you because of the things that they had done, they weren't put in prison, but they were sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. But then he adds, it shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you. In the parallel text in Exodus, Moses writes, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Under these kinds of circumstances, this is what Moses instructs. Then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Not by compulsion, but by choice. And that is how this word is used both in the Bible and outside of the Holy Scripture. Where the man was brought to the door and they would take an awl and in the lobe of the ear they would make a pierce. Why? Because he loved his master so much he didn't want to leave his master's home. It was a voluntary kind of slavery. And that's what Paul is talking about. Serving, slaving the Lord. We love him because he first loved us. So godly love is pure. Godly love is personal. Third, if you're taking notes, godly love is passionate. Hang on, I'm almost done. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Now this triplet belongs together. Our ultimate joy does not belong to this world, but in the fact that Christ is coming back someday. That's our hope. The word hope, elpidus, is not like our word that has a certain indefiniteness to it. It's speaking of something sure and certain that will happen in the future. And so the Bible speaks of the return of Christ as the blessed hope. We are rejoicing in hope. Why? Because the way we think is governed by convictions rooted in Scripture, not simply by our circumstances. You look around at this world long enough and you will get depressed. Because things are not getting sweeter. America and the world is rapidly changing. But our hope is not in this world. Our citizenship is not here. And while we are called to be light and salt and to make a difference, our ultimate hope is in heaven. We are looking forward to the blessed hope 
the hope of glory. And so rejoicing in hope, you can only do that if your mind and your thinking is governed by Scripture and not by circumstances, because if your joy in this world is dictated on circumstances, it will change from week to week, month to month. Rejoicing in hope, look at the second couplet, persevering in tribulation. Now, we use the word tribulation very loosely today, and we speak of trials and tribulation. But when he speaks of tribulations, he's not speaking of your aches and pains, your fears, your frustrations, your heartaches, and your many disappointments in life. Now, it is certainly true that all tribulations could be subcategorized under a trial. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, because every tribulation you face is a trial of sort. But understand, tribulations are not trials. There's a difference. The word tribulation is the Greek word thalipsis, and it means pressure, literally pressure. And it's used in the New Testament, not just of difficulties that you face, but a specific category of difficulties, the kind of pressure that comes upon you because you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Mark 13, Jesus said, for those days will be a time of tribulation, thalipsis, the same word such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. In Revelation 7, there's a great multitude of people who have been beheaded. There's coming a day after the church is removed and the great tribulation, a time that we just read about unparalleled in human history when men will have a very simple choice. It's either Christ or Antichrist. And those who choose Antichrist will live. Those who choose Christ will have their head chopped off. And there's this great multitude in heaven whom John says you can't even number. And they're crying out, these are the ones who came out of the great Philipsis, tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so in the Revelation, they're crying out, Lord God, how much longer will you allow this persecution to continue? In John 16, Jesus warned us, in the world you will have philipsis, tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Paul said to the saints in Lystra, those new converts, through many tribulations, again the same word, we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation is the persecution, the pressure of an ungodly world because you reflect Christ to them and some people just won't like it. And listen, if you have a young person going off to the university next year, you need to prepare them because some of them are going to come head on with philipsis, with tribulation. They are going to be so awed and many of them are going to be ostracized because they represent something very distinctly different from what the most of their peers will represent on the university campus. All who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So rejoicing in hope, that's a spiritual optimism that we have that's not based on some feeling or circumstance, but rooted in the Word of God, the promises that Jesus has made concerning His coming back. Persevering in tribulation, that's a determination to love even your enemies. In Churchill's words, never, 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 never give up. Press on. How can you do that? He quickly adds, look at the third triplet. That's why I say they belong together. Devoted to prayer. He's not simply talking about an act of prayer. He's speaking here of a lifestyle of prayer. And the word devoted 
is the word meno. When Jesus said, abide in me, he uses the word meno, and I in you, because without me you can do nothing. The only difference is Paul takes this word meno and he heightens it by adding the prefix hupa. We get our word hyper from it. Literally, in regards to prayer, super continuing, super abiding. Our problem, many of us, is not that we pray too little, it's that we don't pray at all. And Paul is saying here, don't try to make your prayers simply more eloquent. Don't even try to make your prayers longer. He's not talking about an act of prayer. He's talking about living in the atmosphere of prayer. As I walk with him, I talk with him. I'm devoted in prayer moment by moment. Walk through life conversing with the Lord. Finally, he says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Then he makes this very practical. Godly love is practical, contributing to the needs of the saints. Lest we think that Paul is just being theological, he brings it down very concretely. He puts it into shoe leather. Are you paying attention? He says, contributing to the needs of the saints. You can tell a whole lot about a person's spiritual life by his pocketbook. Half of Christ's parables dealt with the subject of money. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And here when he says contributing, it's a, it's a word that most of you know. You, you've heard of koinonia, right? Fellowship. He's talking about fellowship, but not in terms of us getting together and fellowshipping, but fellowship in terms of your giving. Fellowshipping in terms of meeting the needs of God's people. I got an email from a pastor in India this week thanking me again for two commentaries our church sent him. So thankful, he said, I'm learning so much, and he's so grateful for these two volumes and the whole Bible because he didn't own a single book. And we also sent him, would you like to have God as your friend in Hindi and in English, and he's using those, and and he wanted me to pass on his gratitude to this congregation. This church has built two orphanages, and a third is under construction. You're contributing to the needs of the saints. There's a sensitivity even right here in our midst where there's open hearts and sensitivity towards God's people. And God sees that. And I get a perspective as a pastor that many of you don't get because I get to witness that and how God's people care for each other in that way. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Let's read the rest of the verse. Practicing hospitality. If you know your New Testament, you know that hospitality is a theme that runs all the way through it. And many of God's unknown saints have made the work of God possible by simply showing hospitality, by opening up their homes. And this word hospitality is much like the word Philadelphia. Remember the word philos for love and adelphos for brother? Here the word philos appears again. But this time it is attached to the word for strangers. And it's in verbal form. When he speaks here of hospitality, he's speaking here of a love of strangers. Jesus said it this way in Luke's gospel. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. 
The Lord Jesus is talking about people who can't give back to you, who cannot pay back anything in return. We don't open our homes and invite our friend over, so he'll invite us over. That's not what's in view. And you will be blessed, he said, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Sometimes there's no payoff in this life beyond scratch floors and scuffed walls. But in the resurrection, when you meet the Lord in heaven, he'll reward you. And real Christian hospitality is not just to your friends. It may include that, but he's using a word here that means a love of strangers. And that was so important in the first century church, and it's so important in this church, a growing church. We have almost every single week here a baptism. We just baptized five in the last hour. Every week, God is bringing people and bringing people to Christ. And people are, are finding the Lord and they're new to this fellowship. And some of you, it just thrills my heart. I don't get to see it because in the first service, I usually have to rush out here. I have about three minutes sometimes just to catch my breath, get something to drink and go up and change for another baptism. But I'm told that there are people who come down here week after week after week at the end of the service and they meet somebody new a stranger to them, so to speak. And some of you have embraced those people and you've targeted one or two people in the course of a year and you've taken them into your home or out to lunch. Some of you have ministered especially to the needs of, of those who are new and sometimes living far away from their home. We have a lot of military personnel here. And some of you have cared for them, and it's thrilling to them to be able to come into a home and just get a normal meal. And so many of the people who come into this church come out of homes where there was no Christianity in the truest sense. And the first model and the first illustration that they've ever seen of a Christian home is yours, if you will open it. And so hospitality was vital in the first century because the church was the church on the move. Why? Because one, they took the Great Commission seriously. I thought of Aquila and Priscilla this week, and I went back and recounted in my mind. They went from Rome to Corinth to Ephesus, back to Rome, and then back again to Ephesus. Those are long distances. Not to mention you had traveling teachers, you had traveling evangelists, you had people, Christians, who sometimes had to leave their home and register for the Roman tax. Still, you had other Christians who were disowned by their family, driven from their homes. We're witnessing that in our day. Believers in Egypt and Pakistan and Iran and Iraq, and some of them have been forsaken and left. I was dialoguing recently with some of our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Europe. And if you remember in the Eastern section, the West, Eastern section of Ukraine, the people have come in and they basically have shut down the Baptist churches that represent the evangelical church. Now you don't read that in the news, but it is what is happening. And now they're fleeing their homes to protect their lives. And God's people, some of them are staying in the Bible college that this church built. And they're being cared for and loved for in homes. And so God calls us as his people to care for one another, to show hospitality to strangers. And it's not just something we do at Christmas. You know, every year there are 
people, some who have the week of Christmas off, some who have the next week off, but some who are far away from home and they have no place to go and they can't even be with their own families. And some of them, my, my, my son, who's a, a young officer in the Marine Corps, and he said, Dad, you can't believe these kids are coming in at 18 and 19. He said, they're so messed up and they come from the worst of homes. He said, you're like a daddy to them. And there are people like that who come into our church and people come around me at Christmas. Will you give me a list of some of the military who don't have a place to go? No, I won't. Because this is not just something we do at Christmas. You say, well, how do I get that list? You meet them. You get involved. You get outside of your little world on a Sunday morning and you go up and you meet a total stranger. You get engaged in their life. Paul, like a skillful surgeon, is taking his scalpel and he's opening us up and he's showing us our spiritual deficiencies. And when I meditated on this passage, I bled all over my study again this week. Now, some of you are here and you've never met Christ and you can't even begin to reach these kinds of things. God doesn't take just weak people and make them better. The scripture, the message of the gospel is God takes dead people and he makes them alive. You need to be born from above. You can't even begin to display this kind of supernatural outlook on life without a birth from above. And you can't have that until you trust Jesus to save you. But many of us here have met Christ. And some are excelling and God wants us to excel still more. And some of us, well, we just need to get off the dime and get going. A day is coming when no man can work. A day is coming when all of your opportunity to serve God's people will be gone. And you'll be laid in some grave somewhere. And what difference will you have made for Jesus Christ? That's all that will really matter. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. I pray today for some dear person listening to me here, maybe in another part of the world, and they don't really know if they're going to heaven. They hope they will. They think they might, but they don't know because they've never rested, believed, put their full confidence that when Jesus died, he didn't die for some of their sin, most of it, but all of it. He proved his ability when he was raised from the dead, and you promised that if they will call on his name, not you might save them, but you will save them. And you ask them to come in faith, taking you at your word, for that is what you said faith is, believing what you said. And if you're not here today, you have not believed what God has said, and he's asking you to come and take him at his word. He is not impotent. He is able. He is not immoral. He will do what he said, for he cannot lie. But you must come in faith. Would you come today and say, Lord Jesus, I am bankrupt. I am a sinner unable to be my own Savior. But I ask you today in faith to save me. And because you have, I will confess you before men. Now, Father, help those who maybe just did that a moment ago to take that step to come and publicly confess Jesus as Lord, to give him the honor. Help somebody else here. They've met you, but they need a church home. 
They need a fellowship in which to operate. Help them to come today. And help still others of us that know You, that love You, that are members of this church to excel even more. That men would see our good works and bring glory to You, our Father who is in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are called to love those around us, not just those who can repay our good deeds, but also those who cannot. It's not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to do that. To listen again to our message entitled The Pursuit of Godly Love, download the Search the Scriptures app available in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. There you can listen to the entire Romans series. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a hard copy by calling us at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we'll begin a look at the Christian and retaliation. Join us then as we search the scriptures.